Welcome to Breaking News with Ben Hunt, Jack Forehand, and Matt Ziegler. Before we start, let me remind you what this show is not. Breaking News is not a show about fact-checking. Breaking News is not a show about saying whose bias is the one and only correct bias. And Breaking News is definitely not a show about calling out fake news. Breaking News is a show where we look at today's top stories and have a conversation around our favorite critical question, why am I reading this now? Drawing on the headlines we're tracking at fiatnews.com, join us as we talk about what's collectively making us tick with clear eyes, full hearts, and this obligatory disclaimer. Nothing in this podcast is advising you to buy or sell any security or to do anything with your money. Seriously, you should only act on investment advice from someone you know and someone who knows your unique situation. We are not that person. Just one more thing before we start. For anyone listening on the Epsilon Theory audio feed, we have also created a YouTube channel for the podcast. The channel can be accessed at youtube.com backslash at breaking news pod. And we encourage you to subscribe if you would like to watch the episodes on video. Thank you. We appreciate it. Welcome to Breaking News. This is episode three. I'm Matt Ziegler. That's Jack Forehand and that's Ben Hunt. Today, topic of conversation, political entrepreneurs. So for our big story, we're going to define what a political entrepreneur is, how they work, how to spot them, how to coexist around them, maybe even. We're going to dive into the zeitgeist of some examples of political entrepreneurs at work and at play. And we're going to end with talking about markets and the market implications, specifically here around political entrepreneurship, the ESG investing movement, and then what it means for investing around these stories as they're developing, because we might've just hit a breaking point in these last couple of weeks in August of 2023 with that narrative. So that being said, Ben, Jack, you ready to kick things off? I'm ready. Can't wait. All right. Awesome. So I want to start with this because Ben, your language is a virus piece. Rusty just had his narrative derangement syndrome piece. Something I've learned from you over the years that I think is so important for us to discuss is this political entrepreneur definition. And I'm curious, and I I didn't warn you that I'm going to ask you it this way, but this is the way that I sort of finally like the, the light switch moment in my brain was the, the, the combined words. So we have the political side and then the entrepreneur side. And an entrepreneur is somebody who goes out and wants to crack a market, take market share away from somebody or expand market share with something. And the political side is you can't really do that in marketing uh, unless you find your people, unless you politically get them on your side in some way. So can we start with just how do you think about those two words, political and entrepreneur, and putting them together? And what's it mean in your world? That's pretty good, Matt. It, it, it really is. And I, I published a new note. So we're recording on a Wednesday. I actually posted a new note today. Uh, the title of it is Freedom of Speech, Rich Men of Reach. And it looks at Oliver Anthony, the singer of Rich Men North of Richmond, and also at uh, Greta Thunberg. And the, the connection here is that my strong belief, what I wrote this note about, was that the fame, the overnight sensational fame of both of these people was driven by the work of political entrepreneurs. Political entrepreneurs on the right for Oliver Anthony, political entrepreneurs on the left for Greta Thunberg. And this gets at the heart of what you're asking, Matt. You know, what, what does that word mean, political entrepreneur? Well, you're right. It, it takes very seriously both of those words, the political part and the entrepreneur part. And what I talk about in this note is to compare it to an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur, the last time we had a major invention in content distribution, that being television, and the entrepreneur I talk about in this note is Dick Clark. So Dick Clark of American Bandstand, you know, the, this fixture uh, in American music for 50 years, right? He got his start in the 1950s, and he was around for all those decades, right? So record labels would come and go. Pop stars certainly would come and go. 
The only constant was Dick Clark. And as much as anyone else ever, Dick Clark invented our modern, I'll call it commercial mix of music, money, as funneled through the, I'm going to call it quote unquote preferences of teenagers and 20-somethings. Dick Clark invented youth culture. And that's what Paul Anka said, right? So not my words, I was Paul Anka, who was as big of a pop star as Elvis in the 1950s. So Dick Clark was an entrepreneur. He invented and then implemented with, with American Bandstand the creation of common knowledge on television. So he would choose music, right? So that the music that people were enjoying on American Bandstand, it was chosen by Dick Clark and his advertisers and the record labels who had a deal with ABC and American Bandstand. So, you know, there's nothing organic about this. He wasn't, you know, trying to bring out new music. He wanted to get people to choose the music they wanted to promote. And he did it by creating... I say common knowledge. He, he showed the television audience a crowd of attractive young people dancing to and enjoying the songs that he wanted to promote. And when we see, we a crowd, see a crowd responding positively to something, we like it. We want to be associated with it. So after Dick Clark, then you get laugh tracks coming into television which is the other great example of common knowledge creation. People listening to this, watching this, try this at home. Google friends without a laugh track or Google Big Bang without a laugh track and watch some of the episodes. It is, it's horrible. I mean, it's not just unfunny. I mean, it is, it is legit frightening, those scripts without a laugh track. But with a laugh track, they are extremely popular. We are. Uh, is what you're saying here that uh, breaking news needs a laugh track? <laughs> well, it might, right? It might, it might, right? It needs a live audience reaction here, because <laughs> okay. that's the other example. So it's also after Dick Clark, where professional sports leagues you start televising them, you start televising uh, professional sports, variety shows, uh, comedy shows, all in front of a live audience. This is intentional because the audience watching at home enjoys the performance so much more if there was a live audience, or in the case of a laugh track, a fake audience, providing the cues for, oh, this is funny, or oh, this is great, this is enjoyable, this is good to watch. So Dick Clark was an entrepreneur in the truest sense of the word, the, the way we usually think of an entrepreneur, not in starting a company, but he started an entire way of doing business in television. Uh, so he's an entrepreneur on the first part of the world. Now, what's happening today, I call them political entrepreneurs. They, they might be political candidates, right? I, I think, frankly, Donald Trump was a very effective political entrepreneur. Right? They, they, they have a new way of creating common knowledge, a new way of presenting themselves that it doesn't just hit a chord, right? It strikes at the way that we human beings are hardwired to respond to narrative, to words, to imagery, right? So we, we talk a lot today about the polarization of our politics, and that is all very true. The question is, how did it get there, and how does it stay there? And the answer, I believe very strongly, is through political entrepreneurs you know, channeling their inner Dick Clark, who create new ways of creating common knowledge, creating strong narratives on television, yes, but also on our new content distribution system, social media. So that's what that article is about, published today. Uh, but when this, this comes out, I, I, you know, it'll definitely be out there for, for, for people to take a look at. But 
that's the answer to your question, Matt. It is old school entrepreneurs, but applying those entrepreneurial skill sets in the political realm. That's what we mean by political entrepreneurs. I, I want to recap just this point because I want to make sure I heard this right in this note that I just took. And it's that the political entrepreneurs, one of the big differentiators is it's that shift from you're not just curating content. It's not Dick Clark picking the band that it's cool, but it's actually curating the reactionary cues alongside that content. Is that fair? 100%. 100%. Because that was the genius of Dick Clark, mm. right? It wasn't that, as he put it, this is an actual quote from Dick Clark. He said, I don't make culture, I sell it. Dick Clark sold culture. Because, look, you know this better than, than any of us here, Matt, because you're such a, a student of, of music and music history. There was not a lot of difference between the songs that Dick Clark would put up there. I mean, I, I describe it in the note as like, he's in the business of selling vanilla ice cream, right? And so he gives the audience a choice. You can have vanilla ice cream with a cherry on top, you can have vanilla ice cream with chocolate sauce, right? Or you can have vanilla ice cream with sprinkles, right? Those are your three choices. And then he shows attractive young people enjoying those choices. Oh, it's got a good beat, Dick, and you can dance to it. And then the audience says, oh, yeah, man, give me some of that vanilla ice cream. I want some of that vanilla ice cream. So it was... We are hardwired to respond to a crowd engaging with something. Dick Clark was the entrepreneur who brought that insight to television. We have a number of entrepreneurs now who are bringing those same insights to politics. So if I think about this as a political entrepreneur sees an issue a crowd could engage with, they see an opportunity to advance their agenda, and then they capitalize on it? I mean, is that is that close to right or is that way off? Well, no, it's not way off. but what I'll say this is that politicians have tried to do that forever, right? You're just talking about political uh, politicians when you say that, or political operatives. I mean, what does a campaign manager do? What does a uh, political advisor do? They do exactly what you described, Jack. They say, okay, here's an issue. I think this is a winner for us. Here's what I want you to say to, you know, get more attention. What I mean by political entrepreneur is a little different. Or it's that and. It's that and what we mean by the word entrepreneur. It's somebody who comes up with a creative idea of how to do that a little more, di a little differently, a little more effectively. That's what we mean by political entrepreneurs. And, you know, like I say, I think, I think Donald Trump and some of the candidates we've got out here today are, are, are pretty interesting examples of political entrepreneurs, of thinking of a twist on an old way to do something uh, that makes it pretty effective. Look, I'll say this. It's no accident that Donald Trump was a television game show host. Right? That is no accident. And so the same principles that you would use as a brilliant television executive who thinks of a new, a new twist on some old ideas, right? that's the quality that I think is so crucial in a political entrepreneur today. And we saw, um, you, I, I want to reference a tweet you had uh, on Twitter here because we, we saw some political entrepreneurs in the response to this. Um, you had written a tweet about Mike Pence and you know, I, I have a very calm Twitter. Um, you know, maybe people will get a little <laughs> excited about the value factor every once in a while, but uh, for the most part, there's, there's not much going on there. Um, right. But I went into your Twitter, and it's a, it's a very different world. Um, Ooh, it sure is. It sure than, is. than my Twitter. Um, so, and, and I actually just got, it's funny, before we get into it, I just got called mid on Twitter when I was sharing a, a clip from this episode. So uh, <laughs> I had to look up an Urban Dictionary what that actually is. But uh, I guess I'm, you're tweeting into me you're a little bit now. Not you're not <laughs> But anyway, your, your, your tweet about Mike Pence was, at some point we need to recognize that Mike Pence and a handful of White House and DOJ lawyers saved the American Republic and prevented a civil war. And, and as you can imagine, you know, Mike Pence is not particularly popular with either side right now. And so people really got into it. And, and I think we saw the work of political entrepreneurs in the response to that. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about that tweet a little bit and what you saw in response. Well, I, and I'm not a Mike Pence fan either, right? I, I, I'm just not. Um, 
uh, and and I, I think that the uh, the events of particularly leading up to January sixth were ones where if there had been a different person as vice president, right, a, a more pliant person, uh, if we had had more pliant people as White House counsel, DOJ senior counsel, I think that the events of January 6th would have been very different and the events post-January 6th would have been very different because I don't think the election would have been certified and I think there would have been, you know, as, as, as bad as we all think January 6th was, that would have just been, a, you know, a, a, a tempest in a teacup compared to what would have happened if the election had not been certified and Donald Trump had stayed in the White House. So it's not that Mike Pence was a political entrepreneur. Now, a good example of being a political entrepreneur were the people who advised uh, Donald Trump on how he could invalidate the election. You know, the John Eastmans of the world. So it's like, it's like entrepreneurs in our world of a business, right? A lot of entrepreneurs out there, a lot of people try some new ideas. Doesn't mean the idea works. Doesn't mean it's a good idea, right? But it means that they are trying to turn things on its head, right? And I think I can give you some examples of successful political entrepreneurs. Again, Donald Trump's a great example of a successful political entrepreneur. You remember kind of, um, I guess it was Ronald Reagan's 11th commandment, right? Thou shalt not speak ill of fellow Republicans. Well, my personal view is that Donald Trump is at least broken eight of the Ten Commandments, but he certainly broke that 11th commandment. He certainly broke that 11th commandment by speaking ill of Republicans. Oh, my God. I mean, he only spoke ill of other Republicans. And he, what I mean by a political entrepreneur is someone who breaks the norms of political behavior. Now, that can be, I'm trying not to ascribe value judgment to the breaking of norms. Although I will ascribe a value judgment to the breaking of the norm of constitutional process and the certification of elections. I think it's horrible to break that norm. <laughs> um, but that aside, right, I, I think that I'm trying to make it value free when I say they're political entrepreneurs. And that's what I've tried to describe in this note, right? I, I think that whether it's the creation of Oliver Anthony, the rich man of Richmond singer, creating his sensation, you know, his fame, or creating Greta Thunberg's fame. Both of these were the actions of intensely political actors. Intensely political actors. But they built the fame of both of them under the story that this was not political at all, that this transcended politics. And the truth, of course, is that's not true, but it's the effectiveness of them breaking the norms of how you, uh, I'll say in Dick Clark terms, right, how you, keep, how you get people dancing to the music, right? It was pretty effective in both, in, in both ways. And, Anyway, I think we come up with a ton of examples of this, right? Whether we, you mentioned wanting to talk about ESG, we should definitely talk about that because, you know, that's an example of, I, I think, of um, commercial entrepreneurship, the creation of a new asset class combined with political entrepreneurship. How can we measure this and then get more votes on it or create a candidacy around it or uh, create a public um, desirousness, right, for these political and commercial interests we want to push forward. You know, just the creation of the whole ESG movement is a good example of that. And now the backlash against ESG is a wonderful example of that too. So this is all what I 
falls under this heading of political entrepreneurship. So this this is an interesting lead in into into the zeitgeist because uh, you know there was another uh, tweet we we're going to highlight here from one of the presidential candidates Vivek Ramaswamy um, that, you, that you highlighted on Twitter um, recently. I thought it was a really interesting tweet because you know going back to what I talked about in the first episode, I'm learning about the use of words and there there's so many carefully selected words in yep. this tweet. Um, and, and as I read it now, it's hard for me to even read the whole thing without stopping and saying, wait a second, why did he say that there? So let, let me read the tweet. And read then the I'll, tweet. I'll, yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. It's great. And I'll get you to react to it. It's a uh, BlackRock State Street and Vanguard represent arguably the most powerful cartel in human history. They're the largest shareholders of nearly every public company, even of each other. And they use your own money to foist ESG agendas onto corporate boards, voting for racial equity audits and scope three emissions caps that don't advance your best financial interest. This raises serious fiduciary antitrust and conflict of interest concerns. As president, I will cut off the real hand that guides the ESG movement, not the invisible hand of the free market, but the invisible fist of government itself. So there is, I don't even know where to start here, Ben. I mean, there is so much in there, but like well, even just at the beginning, like the most powerful cartel in human history. I mean, yeah. that's, that's some pretty strong well, stuff. It is. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll start with my response, which was, Something effective. God, I'm just so tired of this crap. I'm just so tired of it. And, you know, it doesn't matter that I say that, right? Because clearly, and you can see how it was ratioed in my reply and the like, people are not tired of it. Right? <laughs> They're not tired of it at all. Which is why Vivek Ramaswamy is an effective political entrepreneur. One, one of the things that an effective political entrepreneur does is they identify an issue that they think can cut across existing political cleavage points. Because the, the issue for an insurgent politician, a challenger politician, of which he certainly is, right? And, and it's actually the same issue that you, you have with uh, trying to grow a new fund, a new mutual fund, a new investment product. You have to get people who are already invested in something else to switch over to you. Right? It's the hardest, this is the hardest part of launching an investment fund. Right? It's not enough to have a good idea. You have to find, because you know, for all the people who say, oh, there's always money on the sidelines and cash hanging out somewhere. No, yeah, that's actually not really true. Everyone's got their money somewhere. And so to launch a new fund or to launch a new candidacy, there aren't just votes. There aren't just, there's not just money just kind of sitting around just waiting for a good idea. Oh, yeah, I have this here doing nothing. Let me give it to you. No, no, right? To start a new investment fund, you have, your investor has to agree, I'm going to take money away from where I had it, and I'm going to put it over here with you. For a voter, it's, all right, I'm going to take my support away from where I had it, and I'm going to bring it over to you. It's, it's one of the hardest things in the world to do. And the way to do it is to sell something sexy. Right. You sell a better idea. You don't have a track record. Right? It's a new fund. It's a new fund. It's a new candidacy. You can't say, well, I won these 10 elections here. You're not the incumbent. You're the challenger. And you can't compete, really. You really, you really can't compete on the same issues that the incumbents were elected on. I mean, you could run from a different party, but you've still got to be the candidate of that other party. How do you become the candidate when, of a party when the other candidates are of your same party? How do you do that? The answer is, I say it's the answer with a new fund too, you come up with a better sales pitch. You, you, you find a new issue that people go, oh yeah, I'm really pretty pretty angry about that, right? or I'm pretty excited about that. I, I hadn't heard that before. And you're the first to do it. That's the entrepreneurship. 
you're the first to say, I got a good idea and I'm going to try it out. So Vivek, you know, he's, I'd say the core of his new ideas is to run against ESG. It's to run against ESG. And, you know, if, if you've got a good idea, other candidates will try to copy it, right? Ron DeSantis has adopted this, right? So he's going to, you know, put legislation to fight against Disney, right? Um, but Vivek's done it in a really interesting way. He's not calling out a specific company that people love. He calls out the asset managers that no one loves. I mean, who loves BlackRock? <laughs> God, right? I mean, and the Vex in this business, right? He started his own investment fund to take money from people to invest against ESG. So he's been practicing this for a long time, and now he's bringing it to a much larger audience. He could not get away with using words like cartel and voting against your interest. You know, the wording that he's using in that tweet or words he couldn't get away with if he's going to go talk to a pension fund, hey, give me an allocation for my anti-USG fund, ESG fund, right? But what he recognizes, and this is politics, and again, is something I'm so tired of this crap, is he uses language to intentionally frame, you know, these behemoth asset managers. So again, no one likes, including me, so it's not like people are lining up to go defend Larry Fink. I mean, for God's sake. But he's going to use the, this incendiary lane, and, and he knows it's wrong. He knows it's wrong, but he's going to say it anyway. And there's enough truth to it. Because let's be clear, BlackRock, BlackRock Larry Fink, they do foist ESG agendas on boards of major public companies. They absolutely do that. They absolutely have ESG funds, which, oh, if you want us to make an allocation, you've got to meet these criteria on our ESG standards, right? They absolutely do that. But it's not like BlackRock and these other big asset managers It's nowhere near the kind of apocalyptic, shadowy cartel of moneyed interest behind the scenes controlling these companies for their own nefarious ESG agenda. It's just not. I promise you it's not. They don't actually own the shares, right? I mean, it's... I, which is a pro- huge point here. They that's don't a, own that's the a shares. Pretty big point. When you, when you it's say, a pretty right? big point. It's a pretty big point. But, but what, what Vivek is intentionally trying to conjure up is what, again, political entrepreneurs for a long time have been trying to conjure up. That there is this cartel of hidden financiers. You know, often this has a very anti-Semitic uh, shading to it, shall we say? That's a very prominent offshoot of this kind of argument. Vivek, for, I mean, he's, he wasn't using that sort of language right here, but it's all of a piece. It's, it's language to encourage the belief that there are rich men north of Richmond right, who live in the shadows, who pull the strings, and they're doing it against you for the benefit of their communist, Zionist, whoever masters, right? And, and that's what I'm just so tired of this crap about. I'll say one more thing, because I got, like I say, I was ratioed on this, because people say, well, but they do, you know, foist ESG agendas. Why are you defending Larry Fink? And it's like, I'm not, right? It is absolutely a charade, an evil, a ridiculous charade. You know, I use the, the, the Shakespeare term, like, you know, it's, it's a tale of sound and fury told by an idiot. That's what 
BlackRock and these other large asset managers do with their greenwashing and other ESG policies pushed onto corporations. Basically, greenwashing is the perfect example. Right? Do this or it's going to cost you some money. All right, fine, we'll do it. It's awful. And it's this big of a thing. It's this big of a thing. I've got real issues with ESG. I think it's, I think it's a sham. Just a sham, right? Because it's all on the E, a little on the S, and nothing on the G, governance, which to my mind is the most important thing. It's a sham. It's a charade. It's all those things. And I believe what Vivek is doing is also a sham. It's also a charade. Uh, but I think the stakes are very high, in my opinion, with what he does to convince an electorate that there's this shadowy group of financiers and then name them and say, you know, we've got to destroy them because they're out to get you. And is, I think there's, there's real power in the political sphere, uh, and, it's, and it's an awful, awful power to wield. This is kind of the problem we have, like, in a polarized world, is we can't have these two ideas, and they both be true at the same time. Like, we can't have ESG is really problematic, but also this tweet is also terrible. Like, you know, both, one has to be true, not the other. And it's like, it, it's just very hard, I think, for people in a polarized world to deal with the fact that there's problems with both of those things. There's problems with ESG and there's also problems with what's in this tweet. 100%. And if there's any downside to a world that's dominated by political entrepreneurs, it's exactly what you're talking about, Jack. It's, this is the point I make in the note, which is that many Americans think that you know, Oliver Anthony, the singer of Rich Men North of Richmond, think he's an authentic overnight success. Many Americans think that Greta Thunberg is an authentic overnight success. No one in America, no one thinks that they are both authentic overnight successes. If you believe what I just described about Oliver Anthony, you think Greta Thunberg is a tool of the left. You think that her fame has been, I love this word, astroturfed, right? It's fake grassroots. And you know what? If you believe that, you're correct. You're absolutely correct. Her, her celebrity is astroturfed. It was created, constructed by political interests, political entrepreneurs on the left. If you're on Team Greta, though, you think that same thing about Oliver Anthony. You think his celebrity was astroturfed, that it was fake grassroots created by political entrepreneurs on the right. You, too, are absolutely correct. The problem is to say, as I'm saying, the celebrity of both of these individuals is astroturfed. They're both tools of political interest. That just gets everybody angry at me, right? This, this note I just wrote will piss off more people than any other note I've ever written because it pisses off everyone. Everyone. Right? That's exactly the problem we've got here, Jack. And, and I got to tell you, and maybe this is where it segues into our market discussion, but there's a real risk and a real danger to allow that way of thinking Black, white, one side, other side. There is no middle. I can't hold two ideas at the same time to my head. It's a real problem as an investor or if you're responsible for other people's money. It's very easy to have that same sensibility that we apply to politics. Red, blue, left, right, nothing in the middle. There's... I can't hold two conflicting ideas in my brain at the same time. That's bad enough in politics. It's just as bad as an investor. I'm just wondering before we transition to markets, like how often do these political entrepreneurs actually, is how much of this is they believe what they say and how much of this is this is written to influence people? Like 
does Vivek actually believe this stuff? And by the way, this is not a left and right thing. I mean, we could put people on the other side who are doing the same exact thing. Like how much of this is they, they actually believe this is true? And how much of this is I'm just using these words very carefully because I know they're going to influence people? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like, I, I think we, we talked about this in, in our episode, our first episode. It's like Hemingway said, it's all true, right? I, I mean, I don't, I don't know the guy. I know people who know the guy talking about Vivek. And, and I, I don't think he's a sociopath, right? A sociopath, and again, I'm just speaking clinically here. A sociopath can uh, compartmentalize, put on a different mask, say different words for different purposes. Everything is done for impact or for effect, right? That's the, the clinical definition of, of sociopathy. I don't think Vivek is that. I think he, I think he really believes, as I do, that ESG is a really bad thing. <laughs> I think Vivek is also an entrepreneur, both in the market sense and also in the political sense. And I think that, well, you know, there's an opportunity here, a market opportunity to build a fund that takes the other side of that trade, the other side of the ESG narrative, and then he said, hey, you know what? This has legs politically as well. So honestly, I think it's both. Now, there are, <laughs> there are plenty of clinical sociopaths in both our business of investing and politics. Right? So when I say that about Pavek, no, I don't think it's a sociopath. I think there are plenty of sociopaths out there, right? Meaning that every word they use is used for effect. Right, that, they, that, that there are no core beliefs held. Um, I, you know, in, 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 in my experience, we have, I would say that, that high-functioning sociopaths are rather well-represented at the highest echelons of both politics and investing. Maybe we should just kind of leave it at that. Just one more. I, I lied about one more. I wanted to have one other one because I'm just wondering how do we defend against this to some degree. Like one of the things I've noticed is, so this is an investing tweet. I'm an investing. Yep. So when I read a tweet about investing, I know what I'm talking about. Like I, I can understand what's true and what's not true. But as soon as I go outside of investing, if I'm seeing stuff about medicine and stuff and the virus and whatever, I have no idea. And so I think I just, I, I have a tendency like a lot of people do to take that stuff at face value because I don't really know. So I'm just wondering like as a consumer of this stuff, who's reading these tweets, who, who's evaluating these different people, like how, how do I think about this? Like, how do I think about analyzing these things and trying to get at, like, maybe not be truth, but what is true about this or, or how I should think about them? Yeah. The most popular note we've ever written on Epsilon Theory was about a topic called Gelman amnesia. So Gelman, G-E-L-L dash M-A-N-N, is the last name of Murray Gelman. Uh, he's the inventor, or I guess the discoverer of the quark subatomic particles. He's a physicist. And this phrase, Gelman amnesia, comes from uh, Michael Crichton, uh, the author, you know, Jurassic Park, um, Westworld. Uh, you know, he invented the techno, you know, he was an entrepreneur. He invented, as an author, the techno thriller book. And then he goes to Hollywood and becomes a, a producer and director. So, Gelman amnesia was from a speech that Michael Crichton gave where he said, look, we've all had this experience. We read the newspaper about something we know a lot about. Like, you know, the three of us read that tweet from Vivek and said, no, come on, this is nonsense. This is nonsense. This is, the, you're, this is just all wrong. It's all wrong. But to your point, Jack, we turn the page of the newspaper we go to the next tweet, it's about a subject we know nothing about. And just like you say, Jack, we read it and we go, oh, that's interesting. Oh, oh, yeah, didn't know that, didn't know that, that's fascinating. It's our amnesia. So we, we, we know when it's something we, when it's something we really understand, we know just how crappy the news is. That, that, that everything we read in the newspaper about something we really know a lot about, we think, oh my God, they just got that totally wrong. But then we turn the page or we go to the next tweet, something we're not really sure about, we go, huh, I guess that's right. Yeah, pretty interesting. So what you're describing, Jack, 
is something that, that, that all of us experience. All of us. We're hardwired to respond in this way. So the, the answer, you know, how do we protect ourselves, Jack? And this absolutely applies to investing as well. We intentionally create what I like to call critical distance between ourselves, our hearts, and the things we read. We don't dismiss it. We don't say, oh, that's just narrative, and say, that must be wrong. By the way, to Matt's point, that was the subject of Rusty's and you note this week, that just because something is part of a story or a narrative doesn't mean we should dismiss it out of hand. What it means is that we need to think critically about everything we read. Thinking critically doesn't mean to criticize. It doesn't mean to dismiss it. It doesn't mean to go the other way. What it means is to think, you know, why am I reading this now? What, we call this the meta level, right? Why was this article published now? Why, why is this tweet coming here to me now? Why am I seeing this tweet from five different uh, big accounts, all of whom are kind of saying the same thing? Whether it's about, you know, an Oliver Anthony. Oh, he's not political. It's just good music. Or we see a hundred tweets at the same time about Greta Thunberg with her How Dare You speech. Oh, she's not political. No, she's just a child. She's just speaking the wisdom of youth. And if you step back and you recognize that, that everything we get on social media particularly has been pushed to us, it helps you to step back and ask, why am I reading this now? Not, not that I'm not think it's wrong, necessarily wrong, but you know, do I act on this? Do I invest on this? Do I forward this tweet? Or do I talk to somebody who maybe does know something about it? That's the ultimate defense, Jack. It's to develop our network of actual human beings who we can have an actual, honest-to-God conversation with, not in public, not mediated through the audience of social media, but one-on-one -on -one with people who do know something specifically about the topic we're describing. Right? That's the defense, Jack. It's always been the defense. It's the only defense. And it's the defense that each of us needs to incorporate into our political lives and also into our investing lives. Yeah, and to, and to your point, actually, about defense against narrative, I thought it was interesting. Rusty's note, by the way, I would highly recommend it. It was, it was really, really good. And, you know, really in, in there, he referenced a tweet of yours where you effectively just put a fact out on Twitter. Um, and everybody came in, like, defending everything about what was just a fact. You said yesterday was the hottest day on Earth since we started recording global temps in 1979. So... That is literally a fact. You didn't say like, that that, you didn't say it's the hottest day on earth in human history. You didn't say like, it's the hottest nope. day on earth. So here's what we should do. Nope. You know, here's my agenda. You didn't say any of that. Nope. You basically just said it's the hottest day on earth since we started recording temperatures and, and people went nuts. Like everybody was trying to defend, you know, one side or the other based on what was a, a simple fact. And I don't think you were trying to make any point other than just putting that fact out there. I'll go farther than that, Jack, is that what I... When I get so tight, so when people tried to do things like, oh, but this is a six standard deviation, you know, temperature event. Give me a freaking break, guys. I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, that's where, you know, your sample size really matters, right? To say, oh, it's six standard deviations out of my 12 observations, right? It's like, that's meaningless. It means nothing, right? And, and you get this, this kind of crap all the time, but people do it because if you don't know anything about statistics, other than you've heard, oh, standard deviations, that's, that's statistics, right? And, oh, six, well, that's, that's crazy rare. You know, it's, it's again, it's, the, it's that Vivek tweet approach, right? Where you're saying something, you're, you're um, not even gilding the lily, right? What you're doing is you are in, I think often intentionally mischaracterizing something so that it has more punch. 
because uh, we live in a world where if you don't have that punch, it just gets ignored. And so what I'm trying to encourage everyone to do is to back away from the punch, right? And that if you read something or see something that does have a lot of that punch, that's even more reason for you to maintain that critical distance. Talk to someone who really does know a lot about that subject matter. And 99 times out of 100, I think you'll come to the conclusion that, you know, there's less there than the punch. But it's so important in politics and investing because, Jack, if you let yourself always be punched around, uh, you get whipsawed. You get whipsawed politically, you get whipsawed in markets, and that's how you lose. That's how you lose. It's the whipsawing that absolutely kills you in markets and in life and in politics. So that's the goal here. You're absolutely right on all those the, the, the scores, Jack, and it's... Um, um, yeah, it's all about stepping back, talking to somebody who does understand it, and not allowing yourself to be whipsawed by these kind of intentional uh, escalations of language. So let's take it to this market section, because sure. I, think, I think something else that's really important here, and you've written and talked a lot about this, Ben, is the thing that drives returns is not always the idea or the underlying fundamentals or whatever, it's flow. And flow belongs next to political entrepreneurs because it's, a, it's an attempt to bottleneck some idea to direct flow to produce some outcome or result desired usually or, or not, perhaps. So let's talk about ESG for a minute. We don't have to go about where it came from, but it seems like we're at a point of redirecting the flow around ESG. And, and last thing that I'm going to shut up is with the BlackRock news and some of the other stuff, and your point about they're not the ones controlling the capital, there are investors who are allocating towards them and doing this. It's when you understand ESG is going to be a thing, as BlackRock correctly did, along with a number of other com com companies, they position themselves to bottleneck and receive and be a beneficiary of that flow. Yeah. In 2017 to 2020, uh, 2021, a company like BlackRock doubles their AUM, their assets under management, by redirecting that flow. When that flow turns and the assets under management starts to decline, they conveniently take another side. So if you could just spend a minute and talk markets with us on this, the bottlenecking, the direction of flow to drive returns and how that relates to this ESG movement. Yeah, I just want to make sure that everybody on you know, listening to this understands what we mean by flow, and that is... Um, you know, it is literally the flow of money, right? It's not, it's not that, you know, the price of something goes up or down. It's that more money goes into an asset class, an idea, a theme of investing or the like. It's, it's what we were talking about right at the beginning, right? About how if you're a new candidate or you're a new fund, you need flow. And there's not just money or votes sitting around just waiting for a new good idea. They're already somewhere else. And so this is what investment firms, this is what political consulting firms do all the time. They figure out how do we create a story to channel flow, to channel assets from over there to over here where we get a piece of it. The whole idea of ESG was a good idea, right? I care about environmental factors. I care about social factors. I definitely care about governmental factors when it comes to business. I absolutely care about all three of those things. Lots of people care about those things. But how do we turn that into a thing where we can capture flow? Can we turn that into a sexy idea? To Vivek's point, can we get that converted into a governmentally required idea? Because let me tell you, people, the best way to set up a fund or an idea or anything to capture flow is to get the government to say, well, we're rewriting the tax code 
or we're rewriting the environmental code, or we're rewriting the legal code to favor your receptacle here, to favor your good idea. And what Vivek is talking about is absolutely right. It is true. And the grand scale of thing, it is a thing here, not a thing here. But it is a thing. It is a thing. And that was the birth of ESG. That was why we have lobbyists in Washington to try to say, oh, there should be requirements for ESG. And it's why politicians, particularly on the left, say, my constituency is very much for the environment and social good. Yes, we should. That it ought to be a law. It ought to be a law. And that's that's why lobbyists exist. That's why firms like BlackRock invent these funds that capitalize on this, and why they push for laws to be made to support them. It is all true. It's all true. And yet, right, when you start using words like cartel, and now we're going to use the legal code to break up asset managers because they're big, you know, that to me is a bigger problem. But, um, you know, that's the world we're in. And Matt, to your point, you know, how do you step back and you kind of defend yourself, right, or think about this stuff? Uh, hey, the first step is just recognizing this is how the game is played, right? This is what really drives Wall Street is creating channeling and creating vehicles to take money from this pot over there and to bring it over here. That's the business of Wall Street. And once you recognize that, you understand those are the rules of the game. So, I, you know, it's... It is the only game in town. It has these different attributes to it that are, that, you know, I can only speak in memes now. It's, you know, the Mad Men <laughs> meme. You know, not great, Bob. Not great. <laughs> um, but this is the world we live in. In our inflation episode, we talked about the typical life cycle of a narrative. And I'm just wondering, where are we with ESG with that right now? I mean, it, it would strike me as maybe a longer duration narrative than something like inflation. It seems like ESG has been going on for a long time, but... You see a lot of tools behind the scenes. So where, where are we in the life cycle of the uh, ESG narrative? That's a great question. So, so the ESG narrative was, you know, 10 years ago. Once, however, these funds, once the institutional apparatus that, once you build an institution that embodies a narrative, it lasts for as long as that institution lasts. Once you get laws passed that say, no, it ain't just a narrative, it's the law, it'll last till the, till, till the laws change. What's possible on the margins is to try to go against that trade. What's interesting to me is that the, the whole notion underpinning ESG is that, well, it's not just good for the environment or good for society or good for governments, it's, it's good for profitability too. That, my friend, you know, that argument that it's profitable to be ESG forward thinking, I, I think can be true in some industries and some circumstances. I think it's rarely true. I think that particular idea, I like to describe it as, you know, some narratives or some stories, some beliefs are like orchids, right? They can live in a greenhouse they can live when you have a bull market. To me, the, the notion that ESG is profitable and is a good investment strategy, period, full stop, I think that's one of these orchids. I think it only lives in a bull market. And in a bear market, that's where the money comes out of first, right? For whatever the new idea, the new receptacle is to take that money. You know, it's, it's fascinating when you start looking at it in these kind of terms as, as Wall Street and investing as um, institutionalized ideas and themes, trying to get legal protection and, and um, 
uh, you know, uh, support, always being under threat from other new ideas coming along that are trying to take assets out of your pool of money and bring it over to their pool of money. It's a whole different way of looking at the world. But I suggest to all of the listeners here, it's a much more accurate way of looking at the world of Wall Street than, you know, thinking about whether people are talking about, you know, the price of X, company X going up or company Y going down. Yeah, on the investing side, ESG is something that really taught me about the value of narrative because, you know, I'm a fundamental guy. Like I'm looking at the definition of a good investing factor and it meets zero of the things that are in the definition of a good investing factor. There's no reason I should get a great return by investing in ESG. But by the same token, as that narrative builds and as, as you say, if governments are forcing institutions and sovereign wealth funds and everybody else to invest using it's this, guess what's going to happen? They're going to keep going up. And do you, yeah. th- do you think those funds are sitting there and saying, well, the P.E. ratio is getting too high? Of course not. They, they could care less about the P.E. ratio. So for me, it was a great way to learn about this. And like it's, it's been a narrative that's gone on for a long time. And it really has. The stocks did well for a very, very long period of time. And no one really cared about the fundamentals of them. 100%. And once you start thinking in those kind of terms, you start realizing that maybe everything is a narrative, including the story of value. So, but uh, but maybe, maybe that's a topic for another day. We'll, we'll save we'll, we'll save the religion of value for another there day. There you go. Love it. Love it. Smart <laughs> All right, I got I got three pages of notes from today, so I know we're rock and rolling. If by episode three I'm on to three pages of this stuff. So let me attempt to summarize for you guys. So political entrepreneurs, and I love this this Dick Clark, so definitely go and read Ben's note on this. It's not making culture, but selling it. And when we're looking for political entrepreneurs, we're looking for the people who aren't just making the content or curating the content, but the ones that are curating the cues to the reactions to that content. Yep. And that bleeds into this idea that a good idea is never enough. The right regression analysis to, pa- to Jack's point that he just made, it's not going to produce ESG. The good idea isn't enough to take market share because to get market share, you have to take it away from somewhere else. So the political entrepreneur is an entrepreneur in the definition of the idea in a category, but the political side of that is you have to get bodies on your side and you win those bodies with story into your entrepreneurial category that's ideally, I guess, profitable in some way. Ben, you made the point about flow and price where price is basically a derivative of flow. So flow in equals price up. And if you want to know what's next in price or in markets, then you really have to look at what's next in flow. And this idea of the battleground of policy around ESG flow, definitely something top of all of our radar. You connected it back, and maybe I'm rewinding in the conversation, but I think it sticks to where we ended with the Gelman amnesia from Michael Crichton, which I, I just love this idea. And we all have our expert areas of what we know we're good at, what we know what's sure of, that we're right about. And then we flip the page and we go, oh, that's interesting. That's right. And we have to expect it. So we protect ourselves by creating critical distance, as you put it, between our hearts and whatever we read. And the final point then is the only way we create that critical distance is by having a human network around us. So not just anyone, by the way, uh, a human network that has diversity within that network, because that's the key. We need people in relationships that are different and that we embrace the survivability of that relationship beyond these stories and beyond these ideas. Because the only way we get critical distance between our hearts and what we read is to have people that have those repairable, surviving, durable relationships. And I think that's a pretty powerful place to end. I think it is too. Well said, Matt. Jack, thanks so much for putting this together. This is the highlight of, uh, of my week every time we do it. See you next time, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you're watching breaking news so more people can find our show. If you know another clear-eyed and full-hearted individual, why not share this episode with them too? Like we said at the top, the media is making us tick, and it's our job to talk. Follow the headlines at fiatnews.com. Follow Ben at epsilontheory.com and at epsilontheory on Twitter. 
Follow Jack at validiacapital.com and at Practical Font on Twitter. Follow Matt at sunpointinvestments.com, cultishcreative.com, and at cultishcreative on Twitter. Ben Hunt is the co-founder and CIO of Second Foundation Partners. Jack Forehand is a principal at Validia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is managing director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Second Foundation Partners, Validia Capital, or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of Second Foundation Partners, Validia Capital, or Sunpoint Investments. Nothing in this podcast is investment advice.